So this morning we're partway through our series called Our Magnificent Jesus. Um, some of you could look a tad more convinced about his general level of magnificence. Okay. Um, Nigel Rupert and David have already shared on Jesus our prophet, Jesus our priest, Jesus King of Kings, and Jesus our servant. And this morning we're going to be considering Jesus is Lord. This, um, uh, what I'm going to share this morning, comes with a health warning in the sense that if you're going to prepare something on Jesus is Lord, you end up with what I believe in the trade they call a, a bring-a-packed lunch sermon. It was immense, it was gargantuan, it was huge. So I had to cut. Um, and you're about to hear uh, one of the first cuts, which is this. I'm going to take as a working position that we all have some idea who Jesus is this morning. I'd like to concentrate on the other two words, is Lord. Is that okay? Uh, I'm going to try that again. You're allowed to say yes, nod vigorously or shout no. Is that okay? Yes. <laughs> you out. <laughs> to someone born and bred in the United Kingdom, which uh, for the record still includes Wales, um, <laughs> that word Lord carries a bit of uh, cultural fog, I guess I'd call it. So to illustrate, here are some genuine definitions of the word Lord. And I, I promise you, they weren't from some nutty internet site. They're from reputable um, dictionaries. Okay. Oh, well. He did that, not me. <laughs> Would someone like to um, help me with the technology? Mm -hmm. Oh. There we go. Lord. Fold in 1954 was a top-class New Zealand-born thoroughbred racehorse that raced successfully in Australia. Lord is a privately held company that designs, manufactures and markets devices and systems to manage mechanical motion and noise controls, vibration systems. And, uh, yeah, okay. Lord is a heavy metal band from Wollongong in Australia. And don't mock, they've released three albums and an EP to date. Lord is a text-based online role-playing game released in 1985 by Robinson Technologies. I can find no sign of them, I think they've gone bust. And my son hasn't heard of the game, so I suspect it's pants. Lord is a husband, or as Shakespeare put it, thou worthy lord of that unworthy wife that greeteth thee. Uh, for the record, his, his marriage was notoriously shaky. Lord, I'm assured by several dictionaries is, and I quote, a humpbacked person, so-called sportively. And I don't understand it either. <laughs> lord is a surname, such as Frank Lord, footballer and manager. I'd never heard of him. Hands up if you've heard of Frank Lord. No, clearly a generational problem. I guarantee our pastor will have done. Lord is a British aristocratic title used as a form of address 
for a Marquis, Earl or Viscount, the usual style for a Baron, and it's a courtesy title for the younger son of a Duke or Marquis, and is the rendering of comparable, especially feudal, aristocratic ranks. But you all knew that. Lord can denote a prince or feudal superior, especially a feudal tenant who holds directly from the king, for example, uh, a baron. And if we look for it uh, in the English language, the word lord, it's, it's actually all over the place, uh, including in no particular order, lord of misrule, lord of the dance, drug lord, high, uh, lord high chancellor, lord lieutenant, lord keeper, lord mayor, lord chief justice, lord of the flies, and if you want somewhere to play cricket, lord's cricket ground. And none of it has the slightest thing to do with Jesus. And for the avoidance of doubt, when we say Jesus is Lord, we're clearly not saying he's a racehorse, company, band, game, or humpbacked person, no matter how sportively. We are not saying Lord is his surname, and nor are we saying that Lord is his aristocratic title. To gain some insight into the Lordship of Jesus to really understand what Jesus is Lord means, to really get it, we need to understand the origin of the phrase is Lord when it is specifically applied to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Unavoidably, we are going to have to check the Greek. Um, cover me. I'm going in. God's personal name, Yahweh, first re revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It was so sacred to the ancient Hebrews that they got very, very twitchy in case they mispronounced it. Now, unfortunately, the need to speak it came up often since it was the custom that the scriptures were read aloud at the synagogue. Consequently, every time the Hebrews came across God's personal name, Yahweh, whilst reading the scriptures aloud, they would substitute Adonai, meaning Lord, to eliminate any possible risk of mispronouncing Yahweh. Imagine, if you will, uh, like me, you, you get people's names wrong. Um, I also get people's names completely absent, but that's not part of the illustration. You don't want to offend our pastor, Nigel Lloyd, by getting his name wrong. So you adopt a strategy of just calling him pastor, both to his face and when talking about him to others. Now, okay, the risk of getting it wrong is eliminated. Most still know who you're talking about. And if you say it to him, he knows you're addressing him. Unless, of course, you're in a room full of pastors. But if you never call him by his chosen name, Nigel, you miss out on knowing him personally. For as well as being our pastor, he's a husband. He's a father. He's a lover of the word of God. He's an immensely careful driver. He is a man with remarkably clean trainers. 
He is the owner of a deranged cat. <laughs> There's so much about Nigel that Pastor just doesn't cover. Uh, he's away, as you've uh, already gathered, and he will be listening to this online. And um, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he hears it. So far, so good then. Yahweh to Adonai. <coughs> Problem. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but the New Testament was written in Greek. And then the Old Testament was subsequently translated into Greek. In both, Adonai was generally rendered as kokurios, which is Greek for one with power and authority, a master or owner, a title with which servants greet their master. And on rare occasions, it was also translated as despotes, from which we get despot, a lord with absolute power and authority. So when the English translations were produced, they followed the Greek practice. And kokurios, meaning lord, is used throughout the English Bible. And those who translated the Bible into English were aware that all this was going on. And whilst English translations render both Yahweh and Adonai as Lord, when translating, and they've seen in the Hebrew scriptures the word Yahweh, they translate it as Lord, but they use capital letters. If you don't believe me, um, go and check. I thought when they used capital letters, they were just saying it louder. But it turns out that there is good scriptural backing behind it. So we use the phrase Jesus is Lord and I think I am guilty of doing so sometimes uh, a little casually. But early Christians would have better understood the same phrase to mean Jesus is Lord God. Colossians 1.13 he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Thomas famously called the risen and resurrected Jesus my Lord and my God, in John twenty twenty eight, when confronted physically with a resurrected Jesus that he'd been told about and had not believed. Now, without getting lost in, in definite articles and indefinite articles, we find Thomas is saying to Jesus, you are the Lord of me and the God of me. Jesus is saying, you are kokurios, Lord, carrying with it all the sense that Jesus was and is the Yahweh of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus, you are Theos, God, carrying with it the sense that the divine Jesus was to be worshipped. Effectively, Thomas is saying, 
it's all true. Everything you said about yourself, Jesus, it's true. It's real. I understand. I accept <coughs> you truly are the Lord of me and the God of me. And he did it without reservation. Theologians make a big deal out of the fact that when uh, Thomas said this to Jesus, Jesus did not correct him. So the divinity of Jesus is all over the New Testament and seems to have been so basic to early Christians that rather than feel they needed to, to make a case for it, they just took it as obvious and stated it as a fact. As one commentator puts it, Jesus being called Lord may be the strongest way the New Testament ascribes divinity to Jesus. There are times when Jesus is called God and other times Son of Man has divine connotations. Other times there are clear attributes of Godhood. But page after page, Jesus is called Lord. And being so called, he's identified with God's personal name. So Jesus is the divine, adding the human. Or as John 1.14 puts it, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So closing the circle on all the definitions, derived mainly from the Greek that we've already looked at, English dictionaries, um, as opposed to scriptures, offer the following definition of, of the word Lord. One who has authority, control or power over others, a master or ruler. One who exercises authority from property rights. And one who rules by hereditary right or preeminence to whom service and obedience are due. And for those of us who would say, Jesus is Lord. They come out like this. Jesus is my Lord God who has authority, control and power over me. He is my master and my ruler. <coughs> Jesus is my Lord God who exercises authority over me because I am in every sense his. Jesus is my Lord God, the Son of the Father, <coughs> who rules by right, who is preeminent, and to whom my service and my obedience is due. Jesus is Lord God. I find it pretty much impossible myself when I considered um, Jesus is Lord, not to consider uh, his, his kingdom. So um, if you want to turn uh, in your Bible or um, equivalent electronic media to um, Matthew 13, we're going to start at, uh, at verse 24. And I'm using, I'm using the NIV here. 
Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came in to him and said, Sir, didn't you grow, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Now, even if we're not uh, gardeners, we know weeds are a problem. I'm a very blessed man. My wife looks after the garden. The quid pro quo is that I look after the cars, but over the years I've managed to get out of washing them, so pretty much all I do is see that they're serviced and taxed. <laughs> There's lots of advertisements on telly, isn't there, saying that if we don't buy this weed-killing product or that weed-killing product, you know, the, the structural integrity of our house will be compromised and our, our pets will be swept away and, and so on. Um, but, you know, this is less of an inconvenience and more in the nature of a threat if you depend for your food and for your sustenance, for your very life itself, directly upon what you grow. It's generally accepted that the weed, or if you use an um, older translation, it's often called a tear, is uh, a thing called bearded darnel, which is a species of ryegrass. When the plants are young... Uh, Darnell looks very similar to, to young wheat. Um, but whilst wheat is nourishing, uh, Darnell is actually poisonous. Uh, it can be found here, actually, in the UK, and it has the dubious distinction of being the only poisonous grass to grow here. Now, I produced a slide to give a visual comparison of what wheat and Darnell uh, look like. But when I made it, I forgot to note which was which. <laughs> so here, here they both are. I don't know which is which. And I would venture that most of us, if not all of us, can't tell either. See, when they're young, they're very similar. And I concluded, well, OK, that's the point of the slide anyway. So I left it there. I, I hope you will, you will forgive me. Roman law listed a punishment for sowing Darnell in the field of another. It was not an unknown thing to happen, and it was a crime, a crime. Any agricultural community would have nothing but contempt for an individual responsible for such spiteful conduct. And in the parable, the infestation of Darnell is such that the landowner correctly surmises that its presence is the work of an enemy. There's too much for it to be an accident. Though weeding is necessary to salvage any part of the crop, we find that the roots of the wheat and the darnel have by this stage become so entangled with one another that it's impossible <coughs> to weed out the poisonous darnel without damaging 
the good wheat. So, the landowner counsels restraint to his servants. He elects to wait until the harvest. Now, the date of the harvest, then as now, is entirely up to the landowner. These days, the landowner will say, let the combines roll. Uh, in those days, it was done a tad more manually. But the principle is the same. It's up to the landowner to decide the date of the harvest. And on that harvest, the darnel will be bundled and burnt, and the wheat will go into the security of the landowner's barn. Since darnel is poisonous, you see, there can't be any possibility of it being mixed in with the good wheat in the barn. And the infestation has to be comprehensively eradicated so that it does not grow again. And those, those hearing these parables and living in these agricultural communities, they would have known all of that. They'd have got it straight away. Now, if we just flip forward to Matthew thirteen thirty six, we read this. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the wheels, weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burnt in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is one of only two parables for which Jesus gave any kind of explanation. And if we note particularly 41, 42 and 43, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In the person of Jesus, the Lord God, the kingdom has come. It's not a military or a political kingdom, as the Jews in the Bible came to expect. It's not locationally specific, nor is the kingdom, kingdom tied to any treaty or agreement. It has come to pass through the sovereign act of God. George Alden Ladd put it like this. The kingdom has come into history in such a way that society is not disrupted. The children of his kingdom have received God's reign and entered into its blessings. Yet they must continue to live in this age intermingled with the wicked in a mixed society. However, separation is sure to come. 
Jesus is Lord God and his kingdom has come. Indeed, all of history is measured from his birth and from the establishment of it. Now, I got teased mercilessly by Nigel uh, some weeks ago uh, about my pacing up and down in the early hours and, and, and all of that stuff. I, <laughs> by way of explanation, for those who don't already think I'm completely crackers, um, somehow the understanding that in Jesus the kingdom had come, an understanding that I, that I had, I you know have had for years, Somehow it sort of got past my brain and into my heart. And the wonder of it, and the amazement of it, and the breadth of it, and the scale of it, and the glimpse of the love of God to do it, it just sort of, well, it set me off. Okay, And, and I found myself walking around thinking about the kingdom of God and... You know, I couldn't sleep, <laughs> and and I would just laugh, you know, like a demented hyena, frankly. Um, and I had to, it being the middle of the night, I had to keep quiet. <laughs> Everybody else, hence hence the problem. But it, you know, it really is my prayer that an understanding of that, an understanding of that, just touches our hearts. I think most of us have got it in our head. But have we really got it in our heart? I, I wonder. The heart of Christianity is accepting not only that Jesus is Lord in principle, but that Jesus is my Lord in practice. Romans 10.9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Being able to say that <coughs> Jesus is my Lord expresses both the objective fact that Jesus is the sovereign God and begins a personal relationship with the risen Jesus those two things. Now, uh, let's say you're not, uh, you're not a Christian believer. You don't acknowledge that Jesus is your Lord. Yeah, most people are happy to accept that Jesus is or was something. But let's just say that you don't acknowledge that Jesus is your Lord. Or let's say, in fact, that you've no intention of doing so. Philippians 2, uh, verse 10, uh, and it's an echo of an earlier Old Testament scripture in Isaiah 45, it tells us this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. <coughs> so here today, uh, at this present time, the choice exists. We can accept the invitation to acknowledge Jesus as our Lord God. We can enter into a personal relationship with him. We can become recognized and known personally by him. We can be counted amongst his precious children, his family. 
or we can decline. This invitation comes, you see, with an RSVP. As we've read, the Bible is very clear that a day will come when everyone will acknowledge Jesus is Lord God. And at that time, the issue won't be whether we recognize him as Lord, but whether he recognizes us as one of his children. And in the terms of the parable, it's inescapable. There are two outcomes, the barn or the fire. I realize I'm being more than a little blunt. Uh, if this isn't what you signed up for, I apologize now. But you see, the word of God teaches consistently that if Jesus is not your Lord God, then you are in danger. And what sort of person would I be if I knew this and I chose not to warn you? If this is you, uh, myself or Rupert or way back at the back there, Phil, we'd be really happy to talk to you about that over coffee. Okay? We've already said that the heart of walking with God is accepting not only that Jesus is Lord God in principle, but that Jesus is my Lord God in practice. And uh, David here, who's very experienced in ministry, um, and who will be very happy to contradict me in public if he thinks I'm wrong, um, he'll tell you that pastorally he has come across a greater number of people prepared to say Jesus is their Lord God than he has people who are prepared to live that Jesus is their Lord God. I, on a wet Thursday afternoon, what does accepting that Jesus is my Lord God actually mean? How does his authority, control, power and rule over me work out in the things I do and say? And how does my service and obedience to him work out in practice? As Christians, we have surrendered everything, past, present and future, when we accepted Jesus as our Lord God. We've been through the definitions. We understand clearly his place and our place. I found a, an old adage when I was doing some research. I'm sorry, I can't say who came up with it. And it certainly isn't in the Bible. But it says this, if he isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. Exodus uh, 20 verse 5. God says about himself, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Deuteronomy 6.15 For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. Now we, we generally consider jealousy to be an ugly word. Uh, Shakespeare called it the green-eyed monster, didn't he, in Othello? Uh, jealousy has overtones of selfishness, of suspicion and distrust. It implies resentment, even hostility towards other people because they enjoy some advantage. It seems to us to be possessive, demanding and overbearing. We might say that jealousy stifles freedom and individuality, breeds tension and discord, destroys friendships and marriages. But, and you knew there was one coming, didn't you? 
The jealous God referred to in the Bible denotes the Lord's deep, fiercely protective commitment to his people and his exclusive claim to obedience and reciprocal commitment. So when we're talking about a jealous God, we're talking about a God who, because of the claim he has upon our lives, and a claim we've accepted, will tolerate no rivals. A God who will tolerate no rivals. And since he is a holy God, his intolerance of rivals is virtuous, which is to say it's driven by his desire for good for us. <coughs> God's relationship with us has the, the heat and the passion of a lover. We sometimes forget that. It has the heat and the passion of a lover. His jealousy is not calm or quiet or dispassionate and it does not cool and it does not change over time. His jealousy is a powerful emotion in support of intimacy with us. God will not tolerate rivals. As Christians, we've already said, we surrendered everything, past, present, future, when we accepted Jesus as our Lord God. Psalm 21.1 The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. That's the NASB. To Christians, us, we're no longer the owner of things, time or money, but we're stewards of them, which is to say we're looking after what already belongs to Jesus. And our opening position should always be one of surrender. With everything we've got, for in practice, we haven't got anything. It's all his. 1 commentator put it like this, the kingdom of God is not my kingdom. Try that again. The kingdom of God is not my kingdom. It's not your kingdom. But it is God's kingdom. I was speaking uh, somewhere else some years ago. I inadvertently caused some offence. Um, when I, I drew a, a sort of a scale and I said, over, over here you have people who are... Uh, cash rich and time poor and over here you have people who are um, cash poor and time rich and that somewhere along there that's where we it's where we are <coughs> now, I think she took offense because at the time I I had a responsible relatively high earning job and she and her husband were at that time getting by on on his invalidity benefit now I feel able to, to say this because today, you see, I don't have the job and I've not been able to work for some time because of my health. So although God's faithfulness hasn't changed, time, you know, my circumstances have. I can claim experience, if you like, at both ends of the scale, assuming you accept that there is one. I think she thought I was claiming to be better than her. And, and that would just be so wrong, wouldn't it? 
Jesus' observation of the actions of a poor widow in Mark 12 and 41 shows us clearly that it's not about what we have to hand in terms of resources, but what we do with that which is available to us that counts. And the fundamental uh, outcome of uh, what Jesus said there was that this widow who put in such a small amount of money into the, uh, the offering, um, she was more virtuous than the rich guy who put a pile in because that, that cost her. Now, you know, we can feel free to think in terms of the, the contents of our wallet or purse or bank account, but I, I really do believe that the challenge for many of us this morning is to prayerfully consider what we do with the time that we have. I really do believe that's from God. If Jesus is our Lord God, then the phrase, me time, has no place in our vocabulary, for it, it, it suggests an artificial division, which it doesn't, it doesn't exist, for all of our time is his, and it is required to be surrendered to him. <laughs> if we stopped there, uh, I think there's a, a, a danger of, of us all going out going, oh, I'm a failure. I don't go to enough meetings. <laughs> I don't pray enough. I don't read my Bible enough. I'm such a failure. Uh, you know, that's, no, no. If, if that's what you've heard, I'm telling you now, you've heard wrong. Because if you feel under particular time pressure, if you're working long hours, a bit stressed, there's reassurance that the issue is not one of striving. It's not about performance or, or how many meetings we go to, but one of submitting first to a Lord God of individual and intimate compassion for his people. Jesus is Lord God. Um, she's not here actually, but I, I noticed when we were praying uh, at various times that Fleur, when she prays, she always uses the term Lord God. And as I was preparing this, I was struck because I tend to use the phrase Lord. Doesn't matter what you use, as long as the divinity of Christ is implied, okay? Don't get too tied up with all the, oh, we can't call him Lord anymore. He has to be Lord. As long as you understand that Lord, Jesus is Lord, is saying Jesus is God. Okay? But I loved it when Fleur, on a particular occasion, she prayed that way because it really underlined that she was talking to uh, the living God. You know, not some mate from down the road. <laughs> you know, but really was talking to this amazing God that we love and worship. Jesus is Lord God. His kingdom has come. It's here, it's now. Okay, uh, his kingdom has come. I don't know what else I can say except that his kingdom has come. Okay, and watch out, I might start again. 
he is jealous of anything that could come between us and him. His wish for us is complete intimacy with him. And he hates it if things get between us. If he isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. That is a huge challenge. You think you've got it bad, you should have prepared the sermon. Okay, a huge challenge and a legitimate question. But it's about submission, not striving. It's not about performance. It's not about ticks in boxes. It's about being submitted to a God who loves us and cares for us and wants the best for us, who understands us better than we do. So Jesus said in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And for those of us who who feel that, yeah, okay, I might have some reservations here in terms of my relationship with, with God, but I don't have time to do more. I want you to, to really let those words just seep into your heart. Take my yoke upon you, yeah, says Jesus to us this morning, and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God is not calling us to be better at juggling all of the legitimate demands on our time. God is not calling us to... uh, Work smart, you know. God is not calling us to all of those things. What he's saying is, take my yoke upon you. Don't worry. He understands. He knows. He's gentle and humble in heart. And only there will we find rest for our souls. And the concern that we have, oh, I just can't do it. God says, well, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. I I will invite folks uh, if 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 this is if this is you know been a a, a word of God to you t- today and you like uh, someone to pray with you, we're we're going to break for coffee uh, in a very short while. Come come down to the front. You can bound down to the front, sneak down to the front, slide back to the front after your coffee, but come come down and, and, and you know we'll we'll pray with you. Okay? Um, and if there are, are, are other issues uh, that you'd like prayer for, if you're not well and you want prayer for healing, for example, then then do feel free to, to come and ask for prayer. Um, Although I can't help feeling that it would really tick Nadler off if you got pray, prayed for for healing and healed today. But I think that's the risk we'll take, isn't it? Um, 
God is so intimate in his care and his concern for us. He's so hot in his passion for us. Um, he just wants the best for us. Um, and, you know, if you really don't feel that you're in the best place, just let's, let's pray this. If that doesn't work for you, um, by all means, ask someone around you to pray for you. 